Thank you, Pastor Tim. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming today and being a part of our worship experience. I've enjoyed the songs we've sung, the prayers we've prayed, uh, just the uh, giving generously of our offerings to support God's kingdom, the greeting of our guests. Uh, just, just a wonderful spirit when God's people come together to exalt the name of our Lord and, and to sing uh, from joy of our salvation. Uh, what a wonderful time it is, even on a cold, wintry day like today. I'm going to ask, if you will, to go ahead and turn in your Bibles back into the Psalms. Uh, you may recall that uh, I'm preaching a series of messages out of the book of Psalms uh, to counterbalance, I guess, what the, uh, the other pastors are preaching a series in the New Testament in the Gospel of Mark. And so from the Old Testament, I'm preaching a series of messages out of the book of Psalms that I've entitled simply uh, Life Lessons from Psalms. And I pray that through these uh, expository messages out of the Psalms that you will glean some biblical principles and truths that will help you and me in living our lives faithfully and, and fruitfully for God. And so uh, please be thinking and asking God's Spirit to apply His Word to your own life, to your own heart, that you might indeed live a richer life, a more fruitful life and faithful life before the Lord. Now, I shared with you in introducing the book of Psalms that it's actually divided up into five books or sections, if you will, and we're actually entering in the fourth of the book of Psalms. And uh, so for Psalm 90 through 106 are all under book four. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first of those uh, Psalms, Psalm 90. Uh, and, and we'll be looking at that this morning and, uh, and, and let God speak to us from that. Um, as I think about preaching this particular Psalm, Psalm 90, and you'll see in the subscript there, uh, it, it says, you know, this is a, a psalm that talks about the eternity of God, man's frailty, and a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Um, I, I confess to you when I was studying in this psalm and preparing to preach this psalm and just thinking about the significance of, of preaching Psalm 90, um, I was really, I, I, I am very humbled and, and, and very much in awe simply because of the nature of this particular psalm. It is a psalm of praise. It, it, it is a prayer. But the author is really what causes me to be so humble because we're talking about Moses here. And, you know, if you stop and think about it, this psalm written by Moses obviously, before he died. Uh, you don't do a lot of writing after you die. But anyway, before he died, was written some 3,400 years ago. I, I can't even kind of wrap my mind around. This, this prayer was written by the man of God. And, and, and you know, scripturally, particularly in the Hebrew culture, Moses is the man. He is the man. He is the greatest of the prophets, except for the fact that Jesus said John the Baptist. There's none greater than him. But I mean, Moses is up there. And so to think that this psalm was written, this prayer was written by the man of God, Moses, some 3,400 years ago. And, and here I am standing, you know, in this pulpit in the 21st century, ready to exposit some of the truths that God had divinely revealed to Moses is really quite humbling 
Okay, but that hasn't been said. You can't really relate to that except that, yeah, well, it'd be like Sister Amy being invited to go to wherever and to, to play on one of the actual pianos that were owned by or used by uh, Bach or Beethoven. Did they ever play piano? I don't know. Maybe they played cello or whatever. But anyway, but j- just imagine Amy sitting at that very instrument where their fingers touched and, and you're going to play. And I, I imagine that would be kind of awe-inspiring, all wouldn't it? Yeah, nerve-wracking too, right? Yeah, what if you broke it? <laughs> but, okay, I'm not going to break this one because I don't have the original manuscript. But the fact is, I, I was just thinking about that. Wow, how awesome is this? Moses is speaking to us. Of course, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us as he did to Moses, but through us, or, or to us, through his word this morning. And so as we, as we look at this psalm, Psalm 90, it, it offers a stark contrast. And, and try to grasp this. Moses did. And if anybody understood God, if anybody understood mankind, wouldn't you think Moses did? I mean, my goodness. He had direct face-to-face encounters with God on, on Mount Sinai. But, but then again, he had the, the awesome responsibility of leading uh, about two million of his people through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And if anybody understood human relationships, I dare say Moses did. But Moses is portraying in this prayer, Psalm 90, this stark contrast between the eternal, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, gracious, compassionate, just, and holy Yahweh, God of the universe, and... Sinful, frail, helpless, temporal man. What a contrast. And you'll see that in the writings of Moses in this psalm. The greatness of God. And yet, the smallness and the insignificance, if you will, of man. Especially removed from God. And so as we, as we look at this, it's interesting because as I was sharing, this is book four, and, and this is one of three of books that are actually given authorship because all the rest of them are, are anonymous. But this one is given to us by Moses, the man of God. And Moses was a prophet of God. A prophet was not necessarily someone who simply spoke futuristic things. But a prophet was a man anointed by the Spirit of God to speak forth the Word of God to the people of God. And if a prophet came to say something, you ought to listen. Kind of like that old finance commercial, you know, E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. Listen. When a prophet of God speaks, listen. And just because Moses has been dead for over 3,000 years, don't tune him out. He's still got something to say, or God's got something to say through the words of Moses to you and me today. Listen, he's a prophet of God. But also, you know, the thing thing that made Moses' role unique is not only was he a prophet of God who spoke forth the word of God, but he also had a unique role of being the priest of God. And a priest intercedes on behalf of the people to God. And how many times did Moses have to intercede on behalf of the rebellious and hard-headed and hard-hearted Israelites to God. So he was a prophet and a priest. What, what a wonderful servant of the Lord. 
As we look at Psalm 90, and, and we'll begin looking at verses 1 and 2, we've read this responsively, and I hope you were touched by the words and, and maybe created some, some questions in your mind. What is he actually saying here? Some of these are harsh words. But let's, first of all, looking at verses 1 and 2, consider what Moses, I believe, is bringing forth to us to consider. And that is, he's praising the eternity of God. He's praising the eternity of God. First of all, he points out to us that God is the shelter and the refuge of His people and has been and always will be. Look in verse 1. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. In other words, not just this generation. Moses understood that God was the shelter and refuge for a man called Noah. He understands that God was a shelter and refuge for a man named Abraham. God was a shelter and refuge for Joseph and, and on and on and on. God has been a refuge and a shelter for His people all through the generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, and, and in the Hebrew, that language is almost describing in terminology like a birth. Before the earth even birthed the mountains, or the oceans birthed, these great majestic peaks and uh, around us. He said, even before then, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before anything happened on this earth, anything ever happened in the cosmos, God was. On Sunday evenings, we have a program with children. We go and, and collect in the community called Team Kids. And so we get children who are predominantly unchurched and un, you know, haven't been brought up in, in Christian tradition. And so we're teaching them about Jesus. And we're teaching them about the Bible and things like that. And God. And inevitably we'll get a question, I think we did last Sunday. You know, one of the kids will want to know. He'll be, you can tell. they look got that very sincere puzzled look in their face. You know, wh where, where did God come from? And, and, you know, our response is, well, you know, uh, God has always been. But, yeah, yeah, but who made God? And, well, actually, nobody made God. God made everybody and everything. And you, well, anyway, y'all pray for us. <laughs> but the concept of God and His, His being the shelter of God's people... If you go back into Deuteronomy chapter 33, if you don't want to turn back there, just listen as I read in verse 27. Uh, this again from Moses, but in a different setting, if you will. Moses is, is telling the children of Israel in verse 27, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, Destroy. So Moses has given a blessing, if you will, to the second generation of Israelites. He's reassuring them as they will be going forth into the promised land that God, the God of the universe, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He has been our people's refuge and He will always be a refuge to us. This metaphor that we see here portrays how the eternal God has historically provided protection for His people. God has always protected His people. 
He's always been a shelter for them. He's always been there to stand between them and their enemies. And, and, and God has always taken that role of being a refuge for us to run to in our times of trouble. I see that depicted in the words of Christ in a, in a different manner, if you will. Think about Jesus in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11, verse 28, when He says to, to the weary, sin-weary people around Him, he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is almost capturing that, at that very image of saying to sin-weary people, look, come out of the world. Come away from your sinful way. Come to me and I will give you shelter. I will be your rock. I will be your refuge. The Lord is our shelter and our refuge. Has always, is now, and will always not only provide protection for His people, but He will be a source of provision. God is faithful. Our ever faithful God offers unlimited provision for His people. When you walk with the Lord and you trust God and you obey God. And this is what God has been saying to Israel from the get-go. All the way from, from the, their departure from, from Egypt. God has been saying, trust me. Obey me. I will protect you. And He did. He brought them through the Red Sea. He rescued them from the encroaching Egyptian army. And God provides for them. David, the psalmist, also in his wonderful pastoral psalm, in the 23rd Psalm, said, The Lord, He's my shepherd. I shall not want. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that, people of God? Is that a part of your prayer time? I don't mean you have to pray the 23rd Psalm, but when you think about your personal relationship with the Lord uh, and, and, and God, do you know that in your heart? The Lord, He is my shepherd. Do you depend upon Him daily to lead you through the, the, the wiles and the, and, the, and the trials and the, the, the dangers and, 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 and the temptations of this world? Do you trust Him as your, as your shepherd to protect you and to provide? David says, I shall not want. Paul captured that very promise of God in Philippians chapter 4.19 when he clearly stated with great boldness of conviction. He says, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Christians, do you believe it? Do you believe that the God who has saved you from the penalty of your sin is also the God who will protect you and He will provide for you. He will provide for your needs. He will provide for the needs of your family. He will provide for your physical needs. He will provide for your emotional needs. He will provide for your spiritual needs. But do you trust Him? Why are so many people who call themselves Christians and, and go to church and, and, and participate in church, and yet when it comes down to the basics of survival, they're scrambling and they're wringing their hands and they're checking the stock market reports. Don't be offended, Vicky. I know it's a job. But anyway, you know, we always think, oh, I got to do this. I need to do this. I got to. Hey, wait a minute. When's the last time you got on your knees and just lifted your hands towards heaven and said, Father God, thank you. 
that I don't have to worry. Because you are the God who is our shelter and our refuge. Oh, listen, Moses goes on because it helps us to understand that our God is the eternal creator of all of creation. I like the language that he talked about there in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth. Hey, who brought forth the mountains? You know who did. God did. He spoke them into existence. The majestic God of the universe. They didn't just evolve out of some big bang now, you know, that happened in the cosmos and elements started coming together, you know, by random chance. Oh, no, this, this world that we enjoy, and that's why I'm glad we sang, this is my Father's world. This world was tailor-made by my Heavenly Father. The mountains that we see and enjoy, the birds that we hear, the ocean that we enjoy. Listen, even the clouds, the rain, the snow, all of it is my Father's world, and He intentionally created it just the way He intended it for us to enjoy Moses reflects upon this. And even though we live in an ever-changing world, I, I, I want you to understand Moses is, is sharing this truth to us in this world. Though all of the world may be changing around us, he says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Do you understand? God doesn't evolve. Man didn't evolve. God doesn't evolve. God has been the same and will always be the same. Holding your place here, if you look at the last of the books of prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. Very quickly, I just want to share with you out of Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. These are the words of that great prophet and God is speaking. He says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. You don't have to worry about somehow God changing. I know the false religions of the world, their gods may change and the, their perspectives may change. Listen, you can rely on the fact that God never changes. I like uh, in Hebrews in chapter 13, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus never changes? You can, you can rely upon Him. You can trust in Him because He's the same. God is the same. God never changes. Moses, in the, the language that he gives us, talking about the, the, the creation of the world and, and the cataclysmic changes that erupted upon the face of the earth of the mountains reformed, reminds the people of God that even when creation itself may change, the Creator never changes. I don't, I, I'm sorry. I may sound totally politically incorrect at this moment, but I, I'm sorry. I just don't get too excited by all this chicken little, the sky's falling language by some of the radical environmentalists. You know, if the, if the environment is warming up, so be it. It's warming up. We don't have to wear as many clothes and then turn our thermostats hands as far. Hey, so be it. You know, we don't need to go hug a tree and worship it in some way. Listen, God never changes. Oh, listen, I don't doubt. Moses understood and I understand clearly too that we live and mankind has always lived in times that were constantly changing. We live in a tumultuous, fast-paced, turbulent world that is constantly changing politically, economically, socially, militarily, and morally. But we know that the God of the universe 
He does not change. He is unflinchingly the same. God's not affected by ISIS. God's not affected by the economic crashes. God's not affected by the world because He's God. And in the midst of these changes and the threatening signs that come on the horizon, God's people need to understand that His nature is the same. It will always be the same. We need to understand that His holy expectations, His righteous standards, His divine promises, and His eternal plan for all the world is absolutely unaltered. Our God is a rock. He's a refuge. And we need to stand on Him and stop taking our cues from the secular world around us. Well, as we move further into the psalm, Moses changes. Changes the mood, changes the references, the focus, because he moves from praising the eternity of God to talking about and highlighting the lamenting or, or lamenting the frailty of mankind. He goes from praising the eternity of God to lamenting the frailty of mankind, beginning in verse 3. You know, as we think about what he's writing here, look in verse 3. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a, like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up in the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath we are terrified. You have set your iniquities before. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives, and that's not a soap opera. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Scholars remind us that Moses is writing this psalm, this prayer. Got to understand what's going on in the nation of Israel at the time that Moses is probably writing this. Remember that Moses has been leading a rebellious people, a hard-hearted, disobedient people who just happen to be the people of God, a generation that, is, that has grumbled and complained. He's been leading them for 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses is reflecting, if you will, this, this population that he's been blessed to lead, if you will. Historically, Moses is writing about the rebellious Israelites. Because they are out with God, if you will, speaking spiritually. 
Because they've chosen not to obey God. They've chosen to, to complain. As we've seen in our Christian growth group lessons on Sunday mornings in the book of Exodus. We see Israel, this faithless generation of Israelites. They are constantly complaining to God. They are displaying a spirit of entitlement. They're demanding of God. And over and over, Moses is interceding on behalf but then again, historically, as Moses is talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness toward the end of their 40-year trek, he's also describing spiritual humanity. All the people of any time period who have chosen to exclude God from their lives. People who have been blessed to be created in the image of God, who have been made the offer to follow God and to obey God and yet they have chosen to exclude God. They choose not to follow Him. They choose not to humble themselves before Him. They choose not to obey God. And guess what? They have a horrible penalty hanging over them as well. The whole human race is subject to God's judgment. All of mankind is subject to God's judgment. From the very beginning, from the fall of humanity, man has suffered under the curse of sin. And is still suffering under the curse of sin. The things that you and I see happening around us, whether it be domestic violence or terrorism or, or blue-collar crimes, listen, all of it, sexual immorality, all of it is a part of the curse of sin and the rebellious generation of Israelites were suffering for 40 years out in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, because they had chosen to rebel against God. They, unlike their children, would never lay eyes on this beautiful land called Canaan that God had promised to give them. If they had been faithful, they would never see this land that would run with milk and honey because of their rebellion towards God and God had pronounced a horrible sentence upon them. Look what he says there in verse 8. Moses is saying, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Listen, there are no secret sins before God. Do you understand? God makes it clear to Israel, listen, I know I know what you have done. I know what you have said. And your sins are always before me. And so are the sins of any individual here today. And people out there in our society. Who choose to knowingly rebel against God. And disobey him. And choose not to receive him by faith. Your sins. God says your sins are ever before me. You know, the difference between an unsaved person and a saved person is when God looks at a child of God, He doesn't see our sins. You know what He sees? He sees the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that covers us and redeems us from the penalty of our sins. But when God looks at a person who knowingly refuses to humble themselves to choose to receive Jesus Christ, the Son of God, they're not covered by the blood. All God sees is their sin. And God is saying, just like He said to Israel, your sins are always before me. 
Even the ones you think you get away with. uh, Even the ones you think nobody else knows about. God says, they are constantly before me. And the wrath of God burns white hot against those who would dare to reject Him. You know, I think about the worldly crowd out there, and they were kind of like the Israelites. I guess they think they think that, hey, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm almost immortal. I'm going to live forever. Or you know, uh, you know, go for the gusto. You only go around once. You know, don't don't be so caught up in that. Listen, God is is helping us to see the contrast between the frailty of man and the eternal nature of God when He says, "For a thousand years in Your sight, O God." Or like yesterday in verse 4, when it is past, and like a watch in the night. What's time to God? And yet we cling to every minute and we try to stretch out. And there's such an industry out there. People are wanting to, to somehow discover that, that, that mysterious fountain of youth. People want to live longer, want to live forever. I got news for you. You're not. Take the person the human that has lived the longest on the face of the earth. Methuselah. 969 years. And that's a lot of birthday cakes. The oldest person to live in the history of humanity almost a thousand years. Wow. Somebody said, man, if I could live a thousand years, God said, hmm, thousand years to me? He says, it's like yesterday. It's like a fortnight. It's like four hours. Foom. Thousand years, nothing. But, but, but we're living longer now. We're living longer. You know, uh, why shucks, I, I, I know my, my ancestors lived to be 70 years old. Some of them 80 years old. Why shucks, maybe getting close to 100. He says, you know, what, what is... He says the days of our lives are 70 years. Average person lives 70 years old. You're getting along pretty good. Now, I know I might be making some people nervous, but, you know, you look healthy to me. All right? And I'm getting dangerously close. He says even by reason of health, strength, you live to be 80. All right. You're cooking now. It's not unusual to hear about centurions, people that live for 100 years, right? I, I was visiting with my dad Thursday, and we oftentimes like to go visit with friends and family in nursing homes, and that's what we were doing. We were over in South Boston, Virginia, at the nursing home, visiting with one of his dear friends, childhood friends, Miss Mary Sue. And I took a picture of him, if you ever want to see it. It's a cute picture, my dad and Miss Mary Sue there in, in her room. But my dad's 89 years old, and he's already making plans for his 90th birthday, but Miss Mary Sue's like 94. And you know, and they, they're just doing great. They, they're tooting along. I'm thinking, hey, that's good. But God is saying, you know, hey, look, even if you get to 70, get to 80. He says, don't boast. Don't boast. Because life is so short, it's woefully brief. And I think about man's futile philosophies that try to deny the mortality of man apart from God. You know, you have reincarnation. Think about Shirley MacLaine. She was so big on reincarnation. I saw a cartoon, two lizards looking at one another. One of them said to the other, said, hey, you know, I just had a strange sensation that I was Shirley MacLaine in a former life. <laughs> so, <it's, laughs> y'all get it. But anyway, you know, man grasped at trying to make life 
live longer. Universalism, everybody's going to live forever. Oh, listen, they're all empty, shallow, man-made philosophies. There is no everlasting life apart from God. Knowing this, now that you're good and depressed, told me, some of y'all are going, I, I see you looking at your purse for that jerry tall right now. All right. All right. <laughs> Our proper response must be that of faith and of wisdom. You know, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the writer of Proverbs said, the fear of the Lord. And, and by that, just a healthy respect for and reverence for God. He says that the fear of the Lord is the source of godly wisdom and knowledge. And Moses knew that this was what the people of God so desperately needed. But this was what was glaringly, glaringly missing from the mindset of the rebellious Israelites. They didn't respect God. They had no fear of God. They were not living by wisdom. They were living by their own lustful, fleshly natures and desires. And yet, as we see, look at verse 12. Moses says, So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Basically, what he's saying is the wise person and we get wisdom from God. But here's how you live life. This is what God was wanting His people to understand. This is how you live life. You live it through a, a healthy respect for God. And God gives you wisdom to be able to live your life practicing stewardship. Are you a good steward of your life? I know. Oftentimes we think about stewardship being using our money wisely. But let me ask you, are you a good steward of your life? Do you understand? Every day you get out of the bed, every day you start out in your life in this earth, it's a gift from God. You're either using it for the glory of God or you're wasting it. And the psalmist Moses says, said, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, somebody that I believe from the Scripture was a good steward of life, and it's reflected in the Scriptures in Acts chapter 13, verse 36. Paul, in preaching that sermon before the Roman governor, Paul made mention of David. And listen to what it says, or what Paul said about David. David, when he had served his own generation according to the will of God. There you go. Bingo. That would be a good thing to etch on your tombstone. I lived my life serving my own generation according to the will of God. Folks, that's life. That's the purpose of life. It's not to be lived, wasting our time, accumulating things, accumulating money, becoming popular, and, 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 and having the... the, the the praise of the world's crowd around you. That's not what life is about. Every day that God enables you to breathe and your heart to beat, God's looking to you to serve your own generation according to the will of God and make your life count. And when you do, God gives you wisdom and you number your days and you organize your time. You set your priorities in a manner. And that's what the children of Israel fail to do. 
God gave them a golden opportunity to represent Jehovah God. And they squandered it, complaining about water and food and how hot it was and, and just all the complaints that they offered. They never invested their lives for the glory of God. Well, we need to move on and close because I want us to look at not only is Moses praising the eternity of God and yet lamenting the frailty of man. He's petitioning the mercy of the Lord. Now understand Moses, his position. In fact, before we look at verses 13 through 17, I think it would be helpful if you could just see all the way back in the book of Numbers. This generation, this generation, and you're talking about millions who came out of Egypt, went through the, saw God part the Red Sea, saw God bring down bread from heaven to feed them, saw God bring water out of a rock as we learned in the Christian growth group. They witnessed the power of God on Mount Sinai. They saw the towering pillar, a cloud of fire by night and a cloud to guide them by the day. They witnessed that firsthand. And still chose to grumble and complain and demand of God. Oh, what a faithless generation. Let me tell you something. God is a just and holy God. And He pronounced a sentence upon that whole generation. Listen to it. This is in Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. Then the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? Sound like a Baptist church sometimes. I have heard their murmurings, which the children of Israel murmur against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do so to you. God says, I heard you. You may have been over there behind the tent, bending Moses' ear and complaining to him. But God says, I heard every stinking word that came out of your foul mouths. I heard it. And he says, to show you that I'm fair, I'm telling you this publicly. Now listen up. There wasn't an Israelite in that whole congregation after this that, that, that would say, oh, I didn't know that. Oh. God says, I'm telling you. Listen to what he says. The carcasses, that sounds country, doesn't it? God is so absolutely put out with them, he doesn't even say, well, your remains. We're so polite and courteous. God doesn't even, he, he, he didn't even go that. He doesn't even give them that dignity. He said, your stinking carcasses, I added stinking. <laughs> Verse 29. The carcasses of you who have murmured against me shall fall in the wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number. You get that? That's a whole generation. From 20 years old and above, I bet you there were some people there who were looking at their birth certificates and going, shoo woo 19 and 362 days. Hallelujah. <laughs> but you get the gist. If you were accountable and responsible and you chose to rebel against me and you murmured against me, God said, guess what? That's you. Except for two. Wonder who that would be? Joshua and Caleb. Out of the whole adult generation, out of that tribe of millions 
of that congregation of millions, out of that whole congregation, only two men, not even Moses himself because he disobeyed God, two men who had seen the parting of the Red Sea, who had witnessed the miracles of God, who understood that Jehovah God was the one true living, only two men would walk across the Jordan River into the promised land. Good old Joshua and good old Caleb. God pointed them out. So, with this death sentence hanging over their head, Moses praised for God's mercy. Return, in verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? We, in other words, Moses is saying, in essence, we've been walking in this desert with no hope. Year after year, we go around in circles. And in fact, we're coming up on some of the carcasses of those who rebelled against you, who died along the way. They're dropping like flies, one after another after another. Oh God, how long? The psalmist in Psalm 80 verse 4 says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? And that's the cry of people who will find themselves one day in an instant in the fiery pits of a terrible, hideous place of judgment where there is no hope, there is no second chance call hell, where the demons and the devil will be and they will be saying, Oh God, how long? How long must the flames burn? How long must I be in this pit of darkness? How long, oh God, must I endure your wrath? God, Moses is calling out to God to have mercy. He says, and have compassion on your servants. I don't think Moses is thinking so much about that old generation because he knows they're doomed. I think Moses is looking at that younger generation and says, Oh Lord, they need hope. They need to see something happening. They need to see you work miraculously again. They need to be moving towards the promised land. I believe Moses is offering a prayer of, of hope. Calling upon the mercy of God. Look at verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Oh, listen, when you're trekking along in the desert and it's hot and you've gone around and around in circles and, and brother so-and-so's died over here, sister so-and-so's died over here and you're still trekking along, you know, it gets dismal, it gets disappointing, it gets despairing, it gets depressing. And, and God and Moses said, oh God, if, if it be your will, bring back the joy. Bring back the gladness that your people... Hey, this is the same congregation that walked through the sea of the Red Sea and stood on the other side and they praised God. What an awesome God we serve. He's, he's delivered us. He's killed the Israelites. Oh, they were having some big revival, but look how fast they got over it. And Moses is saying, Oh Lord, make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us and the years in which we have seen evil. In other words, Moses said, Lord, we've been walking through this desert. We've been suffering. This, oh, look, we know, we know we deserve it. We understand your justice. Oh, Lord, but we're just appealing to your mercy. He says, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. In other words, the next generation. Lord, if it be 
Listen, if it would be your will, he's appealing to God to bring back these divine blessings. And beyond the judgment for sin, God's servants seek his favor. Verse 17. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses wouldn't even go to the promised land. He wouldn't even see this beautiful place of plenty and splendor. But as a true leader of God's people, thinking about the younger generation who were poised to cross over into the promised land, God is praying a prayer, or Moses is praying a prayer for the mercy of God. That faithless generation wouldn't go over. But the next generation hopefully would learn from them and apply themselves and trust God and be obedient to God. Look what he says. When he repeats something, it's really important. At the end of verse 17, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God Apart from you, all we've been doing is nothing. We've been living a life of absolute futility. And if you're living a life without genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ, can I help you to understand that your greatest accomplishments academically, financially, career, materially, listen, your hands are absolutely empty. You're living a life of futility. It won't count for anything. Anything. And Moses is appealing to God on behalf of this next generation. Oh God, open their eyes that they would be able to use their hands for you. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 8, 15, 8, when he says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. How fruitful is your life for God? Or are you living in absolute futility as was a faithless generation? I'll leave you with this note of hope that even for a faithless people, God is faithful. For those who were hopeless, the ones who had rebelled against God and knew they would never see the promised land, how many times in their tents or out amongst the congregation did they look at their son, daughter, grandchildren and draw them up close to their hearts and say, don't make the mistake that mama did, that daddy did. Keep your eyes on God Trust in the Lord. Obey Him. And you will see a better life than we have seen. If you're going through the motions of life, still under the penalty of your sins, sensing the impending judgment of God upon your unconfessed and unrepented sins, weary and tired, I'm tired of chasing after happiness and meaning. I've got good news for you. God is faithful. He is so faithful that He looked upon this sinful world 
and the wretchedness of mankind. And in love he sent his only begotten son. The Lamb of God. Jesus Christ. Who would give his life on a cross to pay the price for the sins of every man, woman, young person, child. Who would call upon the name of Jesus. Repent of their sins. And put their faith and trust in Jesus. And begin to follow after Christ for the rest of their days. God is faithful. He's faithful to love. He is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to save. He is faithful to sanctify. He is faithful to glorify and to bring into His presence those who will choose to come to Him by faith. And I would offer you that invitation. If you're walking in rebellion against God and not put your faith into trust in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to come to Him by faith, to trust Him, and to obey Him. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.